with an introduction. <laughs> you can turn to Galatians. I'm not going to really do much in the book. We will look at just a couple of, of, of verses here. But again, I wanted to, to kind of give us a, um, some background um, to keep in mind as we work our way through the book of Galatians. Right. Um, we are going to Galatians after the book of James on purpose. Okay, We worked our way through the book of James and um, half the church has uh, thought that they have lost their salvation. <laughs> right. it's, it's crazy when you, you preach a series and 30-something people come to you every other week and be like, how do I know I'm saved? I'm like, okay, we need to go to, to the book of Galatians. All right, so, all right, so we are, are moving to work our way through the book of Galatians. <coughs> and in Galatians, Paul is addressing the gospel, right? And so we will uh, continue to come back to this idea of the gospel and um, how that relates to our Christian freedom from the law. Today, um, I want to give us an introduction because, as usual, I ask you to start reading the book prior to me starting my series. And as we have, uh, as you all have been reading the book of Galatians, you all have some questions. Okay, uh, primarily, what in the world does circumcision have to do with me today? Anybody in here? ever thought that they can't be saved because they weren't circumcised? Didn't think so. So the question becomes, how does this book, and particularly the opponents and the issues that Paul is addressing in the book of Galatians, how do they apply to us today? Oftentimes we think that the issues that Paul is addressing in Galatians were specific just to that time. We don't see how uh, the issues are, are relevant today and how they affect us. So this is what I want to do today is try to help us to, to see how the book of Galatians can address issues that the church is facing today. And in order to do that, I don't want to start in first century Asia Minor, where, uh, this, uh, where this city uh, was located. Um, what I want to do is, is start in the 16th century uh, Roman Catholic Church. All right, now stay with me. All right, if you need to yawn or, or pass out, it's fine. <laughs> now, all of us have heard of, mostly all of us have heard of Martin Luther, right? Um, most of us have heard of how on October the 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. Um, but most of us don't know what led up to him doing that or the result uh, um, that followed after he did that. So I want to kind of give us a little bit of background on that for a few moments today and help us to see that uh, what, what Martin Luther was, was addressing in the 16th century is also what Paul is addressing 
to the uh, uh, to the province of Galatia. And it is also relevant to us today because we are facing the same issues today. In 1505, Martin Luther decided to join a monastery. Originally, he was uh, trained as a, as a lawyer. He was in school to be a lawyer. Uh, but one day on his way home from school, back to his uh, parents' home, <coughs> he was caught in a thunderstorm. And a lightning bolt almost um, literally knocked him off of his horse. And he yelled out, St. Anne, help me. I will become a monk. Okay. And so presumably, presumably uh, I don't know how they know this. St. Anne was Jesus' grandmother. I don't know how they know that. Okay. Never, never, <laughs> never saw her written in any of the books of the Bible. Somehow they knew Jesus' grandmother's name. So he, he cries out to St. Anne and says that if she saves him, he will become a monk. He kept his vow, and upon uh, returning home, he joined a monastery, became a monk. And while he was a monk, he had deep anguish and turmoil in his soul because he did not have peace with God. Probably because he was trained as a lawyer, reading through the, the Old Testament and understanding the the truly what God requires in his law and how he as a human being and all of us fall so short of what God requires, he recognized that he was in danger of God's judgment and he had turmoil and anguish in his relationship with God. As a matter of fact, he would write that he hated God because of his holy commandments. In 1512, Luther received his Doctor of, of Theology degree and began lecturing in Wittenberg on biblical literature and theology. Uh, from 1513 to 1515, he lectured on the Psalms. From 1515 to 1516, he lectured on the Book of Romans. And then after that, he started lecturing on the Book of Galatians. His preparation uh, through these books formed the foundation of his thinking on justification. Now, we've talked about justification before, right, when we went through the book of James. Justification, sometimes we use it just in exchange for salvation, but it is God declaring us righteous by faith in Christ. Luther had come to hate God because he saw him as a righteous and angry God, always ready to punish the unrighteous. It was his wrestling with Paul's concept of the righteousness of God that Luther experienced peace with God. Luther stated, Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just or the righteous shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul 
became to me a gateway to heaven. So Luther, after understanding that the righteousness of God is not referring to God himself being holy and righteous, but the righteousness of God is referring to God's desire to save sinful human beings by grace, he now felt as though he could have peace with God. So it took him a while to get to this point. But in 1517, something happened that would change not only Martin Luther, but also church history as we know it. Uh, And that was the preaching of a man named Johann Tetzel. Don't have to remember that. Don't write. I see people taking notes. (laughs) You ain't got to write notes on any of this stuff. This is just an introduction. Just wait till I get to the end. It all makes sense. (laughs) So this guy named Johann Tetzel uh, began preaching and offering indulgences. Okay. So anyone who does not have a Catholic background, you may not understand all of these things. Okay. But an indulgence is basically um, the church remitting. Decreasing your time in purgatory. Let me just say that. Okay. All of you all are going to purgatory because you're not good enough. But the church can assist you and help you out by reducing some time for you in purgatory. Okay. Um, now, and Johann Tetzel said that his indulgences could reduce 1.9 million years off of your time in purgatory. 1.9 million years. So you all are very, very bad people. <laughs> I, I don't plan on spending that much time. Right? <laughs> right. Well, purgatory ain't real anyway, so let's move on. Anyway, so Johann Tetzel began to teach that by purchasing these indulgences, you could not only get yourself out of purgatory, but you could also get your family members out of purgatory. This idea of indulgences is tied to the Catholic Church's sacrament of penance. According to Catholic doctrine, when someone is baptized, they receive the grace of justification. However, that grace can be lost if you commit a mortal sin, okay? So you can be righteous, right? You can be justified when you get, um, become baptized. Uh, but if you commit a mortal sin, let's say adultery, fornication, murder, you know, if you think through Paul's list in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 or 1 Timothy chapter 1, you commit any of those sins, right? You will kill your justification. That's why it's called a mortal sin. So what you were given by grace in baptism, God will take from you in mortal, um, if you commit a mortal sin. And so, therefore, you will need to practice the sacrament of penance, which the Catholic Church says is the second plank of justification. So, if you all are really that bad and lose your salvation, you can get it back if you practice the sacrament of penance and make some form of restoration restitution the church can also also offer you an indulgence to assist with the acts of act of satisfaction 
Originally, indulgences were for the living, but in 1476, Pope Sixtus IV extended the scope of indulgences to those who had died as well. And so, indulgences became a mechanism to solve financial crises in the church. Whenever the church ran into financial problems, they started to sell indulgences as a way to bring money in to solve that. And one such time happened during the time of Martin Luther understanding justification by faith. And so the short version is this. The Vatican ran into financial problems. And in order to solve this financial problem, they, um, the Vatican sold the office of Archbishop of Mainz to Prince Albert of Brandenburg. Okay, so... He was too young to, to take this role, and he already was the bishop of two different cities, which was at the time illegal, so now he had three, <laughs> three bishoprics, right? Uh, they sold it to him, and they financed the sale by selling indulgences. But of course you can't say that, so they said they needed the money to rebuild St. Peter's Church in Rome. Martin Luther did not have an issue with the sale of indulgences. He had an issue with the sales techniques of Johann Tetzel. He would go around preaching and had the slogan, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So as soon as you drop your money in the basket, pow, your family member's already out. Okay. And which one of you having the money, knowing that your family member is in anguish and turmoil and purgatory, and you have the funds to do it, why would you not get your family member out? <laughs> and then they pass the offering plate. <laughs> okay. So Martin Luther... He took issue with the way that Johann Tetzel was manipulating people into the sale of indulgences. <coughs> and this led him to draft his 95 theses or his 95 points of debate, and he nailed them to the door of the castle church. Now, Martin Luther was not trying to start a reformation. He was not trying to leave the Catholic church. All he was trying to do was stir a debate so that they correct, uh, could correct the misuse of what he thought was a proper thing, which was indulgences. However, uh, some of his students had another idea. They took his, uh, his theses, translated them from Latin, right? Latin was the, was, the, was, was the language of those who were scholars, right? You all aren't smart enough to learn Latin. Matter of fact, it was illegal. Right, so that you could come to church and we could tell you what the Bible says and you couldn't read it for yourself. They translated it from Latin into German, and then because the printing press was new, they mass printed his, his theses and passed it all around, and the rest, as they say, is history. And so the reason that we have Baptist churches and you know Lutheran churches and, and all of the other churches is because of this event, okay, what came out of this. Now, what I want us to do is back up for a moment and really look at the underlying issue 
for the Reformation because I think that the underlying issue for the Reformation is the same issue that we find in the book of Galatians. And I think that it is also the same issue that we are still wrestling with today. And that issue really is justification. How can sinful people be right with a holy God? Now, I want to be clear up front that both the Catholic Church and Protestant churches believe that you must express faith in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Sometimes people will, will say that, uh, that the Protestants believe that you have to put faith in Christ and then Catholics believe that you have to do works in order to be saved. And that's simply not true. Uh, both groups believe in justification by faith, that you have to put your faith and trust in Jesus' work on the cross. The debate centers on whether or not a person is justified by faith or if a person is justified by faith alone, okay? Both believe in justification by faith. The question is, are we saved by faith or are we saved by faith alone? And there is an eternity of difference in the um, in difference of those two opinions, okay? And so this is the difference that I believe Paul is addressing in the book of Galatians, and I believe that it is still relevant for us today. And when we talk about justification by faith, we are discussing how we as sinners can become righteous in the sight of a holy God. There is much confusion, um, in my opinion, on this issue. So let me illustrate this with a point. How many of you uh, have ever uh, shared the gospel with someone? You've witnessed to someone, you've talked to them about how they can be saved. How many of you, after sharing uh, with someone the gospel or asking them how do they know if they're saved or going to heaven, the person has said, I know I'm saved because I was baptized as a child. Right? You heard that? So that is <coughs> part of <laughs> the issue that I, that I, that I think that, that we see in the book of Galatians. Um, you can also uh, talk about some people who believe that in order to be saved, you have to speak in tongues. Okay. I remember when I was at Morgan, <laughs> they had these, uh, this guy, I'm not going to name the church that, that, they <laughs> that, he att that they <laughs> he attended, but they were on the corner uh, evangelizing, and, and uh, I walked by, and, and he didn't know me, so he, we started talking, and he tried to share the gospel with me, and, and he had asked me, uh, if I had been baptized before. And I said, yeah, I've been baptized, I'm saved, you know. And so he says, well, did you speak in tongues when you were baptized? I said, no, no. And so he said, well, see, that's the problem. Your church didn't baptize you correctly. So what you got to do is come to my church, and we will re-baptize you so that when you get baptized, you will speak in tongues, and then you will know for sure that you can go to heaven. <laughs> yeah, they must have some different kind of water over there. So I don't know. 
there is much confusion on what the foundation of our salvation is. And included in this number are people that I would consider to be Christians who regularly attend church. Many people believe that baptism or speaking in tongues or their own good deeds are somehow involved in their salvation, but they aren't. They are not at all. Others believe that their actions in some way play a role in their salvation, either to initially get them saved or that upon being saved, their actions will factor into whether or not they will continue to be saved. I don't know how many people I've talked to that said they're saved, but then they, they aren't quite sure. I don't know if I'm going to make it in or why aren't you sure? I'm like, well, because, you know, I do this sometimes or this happens. And I'm like, well, well, let, 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 well let's talk about that. And, and so sometimes people believe that, that if you commit a sin and you don't get a chance to ask for forgiveness before you die, then you will still not go to heaven. That, of course, is not true either. For example, if someone trusts in Christ but then commits adultery, or someone trusts in Christ and then robs a liquor store <laughs> and doesn't get a chance to confess their sins, or if you believe in Jesus and don't get circumcised, Galatians, People believe that those actions will keep them out of heaven. And what I want us to see as we work our way through the book of Galatians, Paul is trying to show us that our justification is apart from our works. Our works don't factor into our salvation at all. Now, I can put an asterisk right there, see my entire series on the book of James, <laughs> okay? Um, but again, the point is, we will address this. James and Paul are addressing two different things. Paul is addressing how you get saved. And he will repeatedly say here in Galatians, also in, um, in Romans and in, in his other letters, that in order to get saved, you cannot do any good works. Not one of your works are good enough. If we would like to pull in, 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 in Isaiah, all of your righteous deeds are like a filthy rag. Okay. And again, uh, for, for those who don't, who don't know, a filthy rag was a minstrel pad that women used in the Old Testament. That's what God thinks of your good deeds. Use it, throw it away every 28 days. James is addressing something different. James is addressing those people who are saved but feel they can live any kind of way they want. They don't have to live a holy lifestyle that pleases God. James says that you must have good works in order to prove that you are genuinely saved. One is addressing how you get saved. The other is addressing how you should live after you are saved. 
But James is not saying if you don't have good works, you are not saved. He's saying you might not be. No, I'm just like, <laughs> okay. But look, back to my point. In order for us to come to a resolution on these issues, we have to uh, ask and answer two underlying questions. Question number one, what is the foundation of our justification? What is the foundation of our justification? And number two, how is this justification received? What is the foundation of our justification and how is this justification received? And as you would imagine, Protestants and Catholics have different answers to this question. In reference to the first question, there are two options. You are either justified by the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us. And remember, we talked about imp imputation is God taking Jesus' righteousness and putting it on our account, like a bank account is a banking term, transferring something to someone's account. That is the Protestant view. Or you are justified by God taking the righteousness of Christ and placing that righteousness within you. Either God takes Jesus' righteousness, which is his, and it is apart from you, it is not your own, and he puts it on your account, or he takes Jesus' righteousness and puts it within you so that you become inherently righteous yourself. These differences, may, these differences in the views may sound close or insignificant, but they are not. The Protestant view is that we are declared righteous at the moment of salvation, the moment you put your trust in Christ, you are declared righteous in God's sight by Jesus' righteousness that's placed on your account. This righteousness remains his, and it is apart from you, and you are still a sinner. You are still unrighteous, and you remain unrighteous. Or as Martin Luther said, um, wrote, Simul Eustis et Peccator. You are at the same time righteous and a sinner. Or, on the Catholic view, faith enables us to become actively and inherently righteous by the righteousness of Christ working within us so that God can then declare us righteous because we are truly righteous. So God can't declare you righteous until you actually become righteous. And quite naturally, in Catholic teaching, there is no assurance of salvation. Because you never know if your works are going to be good enough to get you in. And that's why we need purgatory. Could it, see what she say? <laughs> Can I say it in English? Say what again in English? I thought I was talking in English. <laughs> I'll break it down a little. Okay, so Jesus dies on the cross, right? Jesus Himself is one hundred percent holy and righteous because He is Himself God, right? He lives a perfectly holy and righteous life. Okay. So, 
what we lack is that righteousness. God requires us to, to, f- to fulfill his law. Now, we think of the Ten Commandments, but there are 616 laws in the Old Testament, right? That the Old Testament can be divided up into, I mean, the Ten Commandments can be divided up into. Jesus perfectly kept all of God's laws, whereas we fail. Okay. Now, we, God wants to save us. What do you need in order to be saved? You need to be righteous. You need to be 100% perfect, just like Jesus. So we give you a test, right? If you, if you want to do evangelism, walk out on the street and give someone the Ten Commandments, okay? You shall have no other God before you, right? Are you, a, are you an idol worshiper? No, I don't, I don't bow down to little statues. Do you come to church on Sunday, or do you have to stay home and wash your car? Do you, do you have to work six days a week so that you can maintain a certain lifestyle? Maybe you have an idol, something that you're putting before God. Okay, okay let, let, let's just skip to the second half. You shall not kill. Oh, I've never murdered anybody. Jesus said if you hate your brother in your heart, you've already broken that commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, I've never done that before. Jesus said, if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've already broken that commandment. Honor your mother and your father. All of us will go to hell for that one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Okay. So you have to be 100% perfect. None of us are 100% perfect. None of us are righteous. So what does God do? Okay, so here's the, the two views. He can take Jesus's righteousness, and even though you continue to sin every single day of your life, God, just like, okay, so that here's, here's an illustration example. When God created the world, right? Y'all had me way off my notes. I ain't had none of this. <laughs> when God created the world, okay, he said, let there be light right? Did light exist? No. It came into existence because of God's declaration. So when when he said, let there be light, his speech created what he wanted, okay? So is that what salvation is? That, That we are sinners But because God has declared us to be righteous in his sight, we continue on sinning, but we are truly righteous in his sight. Or does God take Jesus's righteousness and work his righteousness in your life so that you become a truly righteous person so that when you get to heaven, then he can say, wow, I can let you in because you are truly righteous. Which, which one of those two is, is right? It, it has to be the first, right? It has to be the first view, that I continue to be a sinner. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God, right? Consistently and continuously, every single day we sin and we fail. But Paul's point is, Romans chapter 8, There is no condemnation, Romans 8, 1. 
There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You will never be punished or sent to hell or condemned even though you still sin. Why? Because God takes Jesus's perfect life and credits that to you as if you lived perfectly righteous to him. Now, the Catholic Church says that that's, that is a legal fiction, that you cannot take someone else's righteousness and credit that to, um, to someone else. And so that's why they take the second view. That God cannot declare you righteous until you actually become righteous. You have to live a lifestyle that can please God. And we can't, so therefore you need sacraments of penance. Is it a little bit more clear? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, so, let's see where, where I can jump back in. One of these positions, right, um, is justification by faith. And the other position is justification by faith alone. One of these positions is definitive at the moment of salvation, and the other position depends on a lifetime of good works in addition to faith in Christ. One of these positions offers assurance of salvation here and now as we rest in the finished work of Christ, while the other position robs us of that assurance until we add enough good works to the finished work of Christ. Now, if, if I have to add works to the finished work of Christ. Uh, to me, it's not finished, but that, that's just me. Um, but, um, but is there any wonder that so many Christians today struggle under the same burden that Martin Luther struggled under? Deep anguish of soul wrestling with God, feeling that you're not good enough and not able to rest assured and confident that you will actually get to heaven. After so many spending a lifetime of doing good deeds. <laughs> Many are still under the impression that they will have to spend time in purgatory to finish purging, that's the idea of the word purgatory, purging their soul of any sin. <laughs> and as I said, the indulgences uh, in Martin Luther's day would get you out of a 1.9 million years in purgatory. Now imagine living 60, 70, 80 years trying to do enough good deeds to get into heaven and then it's like, nope, you can't make it. Now go to purgatory for two million years and then you can come back. We have seen that justification is either God by the righteousness of Christ enabling us to work hard enough to earn his declaration of righteousness or it is God declaring us righteous 
even though we are still sinners. And of course, I believe, um, as well as I think that, that the book of Galatians is trying to point to the, the second view, that we can't work hard enough to, to demonstrate our righteousness before God, but that it has to be given to us by faith. Excuse me. The second question to be answered is, how is this justification received? And again, uh, there's two options. Number one, by faith. Okay, that's the Catholic view. And our view, the Protestant view, is by faith alone. Again, the, there are differences in these two um, views. The word by in justification by faith um, is talking about the means or the instrument um, by which you can be justified. Okay, um, The Catholic Church teaches that justification is a necessary cause of salvation, but not a sufficient cause for salvation. And I want you to keep that phrase in mind um, when we go back to the book of Galatians, that faith is a necessary cause for salvation, but it is not a sufficient cause for justification. That means that faith in Christ is necessary for a person to be saved, but faith alone is not sufficient to bring about salvation. Rome teaches that the sacraments um, are the means or instrument of justification. And when we say sacraments, right, we don't normally use that term. We would use the term ordinance, okay? So we talk about like baptism and, and communion, okay? So uh, they just use the word, um, the word sacrament, and they have a slightly different, uh, under, well, not slightly, different understanding of what those, those things are. So they believe that justification is conferred upon us at baptism. So if you want to be saved, you must first be baptized. Okay. So in baptism, you receive the grace of justification. But you can lose that justification by committing a mortal sin. So the second um, sacrament that is needed is the sacrament of penance. And therefore, you can regain that justification. Protestants teach that faith alone is the means by which a person is justified. That means that faith itself, faith alone, or to use Paul's phrase, faith apart from works, is sufficient to effect justification. Again, let me say this in English. Okay. <laughs> All we're saying is, how do we receive this righteousness from God? Is it, is it by faith? Meaning we have to put our trust in God, and that's necessary in order for us to be saved. You have to put trust in Jesus in order to be saved. But that's not sufficient. You must also do something yourself in addition to putting trust in Jesus. Say, get circumcised and follow the whole law if you're talking about Galatians. Okay. Or is faith in Jesus itself enough to get you saved? That's, what, that's the difference. Is faith necessary for salvation, but not sufficient? So you have to add your own good deeds. Or is, is faith itself sufficient that once you put your trust in Christ at that moment, you experience salvation? That's what we're, that's what we're talking about. 
I believe that our righteous standing before God depends solely upon trusting in Jesus and his finished work on the on the cross and no good deeds on our part. Not even one can be added to his work. Let me close by saying this. At this point, your eyes are probably glazed over. Right. You probably thinking about, man, I'm so sad the Ravens lost last night. I wish he would hurry up and shut up so we can <laughs> so we can go to Hibachi Grill and get something to eat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. But <laughs> you, you you're probably thinking, what's the, what is the big deal? What what what's the big deal? between these two um, these two opinions. You just sat up there and talked for 30 minutes or 45 minutes, and, and I still don't know which one is correct. Okay. That's the whole point of the book of Galatians. Okay, that's why we're going through this series. Okay. We're gonna, what I want us to, to do is look at just th- three, three passages right here in Galatians real quick. Just glance through. I'm just going to read them. Not, no explanation or anything like that. Um, so that we can start to get a, a, a thought on which one of these views is correct. Do you have to put faith in Jesus and then add your good works to it in order to be truly saved? Or is putting your trust in Jesus itself all you need in order to be genuinely saved? Now, listen to what Paul says here, I want you to look at Galatians chapter 2, bless you, verse 16. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Then one there? Right. He says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. So not by anything that you do. A person is not justified by the works of the law, but by what? Faith in Jesus. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified. How? By faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Why? For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified by your own actions no one will be saved would you look in galatians chapter 2 verse 21 galatians chapter 2 verse 21 he says i do not set aside the grace of god for if righteousness comes through the law meaning through your works then christ died in vain. If if you want to add your works to what Jesus did, you're taking the, you're taking his God's grace and you're putting it to the side. And Jesus died for nothing. Why it, it why have to trust in Jesus and still do good works? Why did Jesus have to die? You can just do the good works and do this on your own. Last one, Galatians chapter 3, Galatians 3, 1 through 7. 
He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly betrayed among you, portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh, by your own works? So you, you trusted him. But do you think that you're maturing and, and becoming better by your own works? Have you suffered so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, therefore, he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? <coughs> Let me finish by answering what I think is at stake here. What I think is at stake is, number one, is the gospel. Number two, I think what is at stake is a person's uh, salvation. And then number three, I think what is at stake is our assurance and confidence before God. And I think that I, I see that clearly in what Paul is saying here uh, in the book of Galatians, right? I want you to look back in Galatians chapter one. Again, we'll just read the, um, these verses and and um, and I'll be done. <coughs> Some still question a group of uh, uh, of 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 people still today, scholars still today, question whether or not this is that big of a deal. Okay, uh, and I think that Paul would say that. This is the biggest deal ever, right? Because eternity hangs on these issues, right? You, you don't want to die and go to heaven and realize you got this wrong. <laughs> Trust me, it's not going to end well for you. The gospel, in Paul's mind, is at stake. Listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. This is how serious Paul takes this. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. You are turning away to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what you ha we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Let him be damned to hell. If someone comes and preaches a different gospel to you, I pray they go to hell. That's what Paul is saying. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than the one that you have received, let him be accursed. What Martin Luther was trying to recover was not a doctrine of justification. He was trying to recover the gospel. The second thing I said I think that is at stake is a person's individual salvation. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, <coughs> that a person who tries to add 
their works to Jesus' work is falling far short of Christ. They're separating themselves from Christ. Verse 1, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised or baptized and have to speak in tongues or any other things we mentioned, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. If you try to add your own works to what Jesus has done, you are separating yourself from Christ. You have fallen from grace. It's it's imperiling your own salvation. Number three, lastly, I think that all of those who try to add their works to um, their faith in Christ is doomed to the same fate as Martin Luther before his breakthrough understanding of the gospel. You're bringing in deep anguish of your soul, constantly beating yourself um, up because you know your own failures, right? And in our hearts, we know that we will never be good enough to please a holy God. Now, what I'm trying to get us to to see is that is the whole point of Paul's book of Galatians. That's the whole point of the gospel. That's Martin Luther's whole point. You will never be good enough. Now, I know I got in trouble on Facebook when I said that. Somebody shared something that says, um, you know, uh, you need to stop telling people um, they aren't good enough. Now, I don't know what the conversation was, but I shared it was like, I mean, isn't that the gospel? I don't understand. And then people get mad, <laughs> right? Then I got to get off of Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, that's the point of the gospel. You will never be good enough. Never. God requires holiness. If you are 99% good, God says, great, take the elevator downstairs, go to the left, it's going to be real hot. 99% good, you can't get into heaven. That 1% is enough for God to roast you in hell for all eternity because he demands 100% holiness. Now, if you like me, you're not going to be standing on the judgment day. Well, see, God, I was 99% good. We're going to be arguing about that 1%. You know, that 1% of the time, God, (laughs) you know, I was able to do it, just that 1%. (laughs) All of us are sinners. None of us are good enough. But that's the point of the gospel. God loves sinners. And he has made a way for you to be saved. He sent his son to die in your place because only his son was good enough. And if you just trust his son, 
He will take his son's perfection and place it on your account so that even if you still sin, and you will, all right, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, you have a lawyer who's seated in God's presence, and he himself is the satisfaction for your sin. And he, if we add in the book of Hebrews, is always standing there talking to the Father, pleading on your behalf. You got to let that go. I already paid for that. (laughs) And so we don't have to continue beating ourselves up. We have, all of us in this room have struggled with something, right? Lying, cheating, stealing, adultery, fornication, whatever. Name it. All of Look, if, we were, if I go in there and get my, cat, uh, my Catholic catechism and read off all of the mortal sins, I bet you we check off every single one in this room. <laughs> all of us have committed a mortal sin. And trust me. And if I told you about my mortal sin, y'all be like, man, why are we listening to him? <laughs> <laughs> like, we couldn't do no better. <laughs> okay. But that's the point. That is the point. You don't have to beat yourself up or wonder, oh, I wonder if God really loves me. I wonder if I'm going to get in. Oh, man, I tried my best, but I don't know if my best is good enough. You don't have to worry about that. Jesus paid for all of that, and your faith itself is what connects you to him. This is what we will walk our way through in the book of Galatians. Okay, I try to make applications to um, to different things. Like, for example, you know, we can switch out circumcision with speaking in tongues or being, you know, being baptized a certain way. Because I think that was the, the, the guy's point is that I was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, and and I need to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Because Peter said, "Be baptized in the name of Jesus," and and and, I, and I'm like. Yeah, but Jesus said, be baptized in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Like, so we didn't even got to debate those little crazy things. But the point is, who really cares? If, if, you, if, you, if you say, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, or baptize in the name of Jesus, what difference does it make? Baptism is not what saves us. <laughs> okay? Because I've never had one person answer this question. What about the thief on the cross? He didn't. He didn't get baptized, but Jesus, or speak in tongues, right? (laughs) (laughs) But Jesus said, today, you will be with me in paradise. So, if you are struggling, right, with a lack of assurance, lack of confidence in your relationship with God, you question um, whether or not God really loves you, or if he's forgiving you about something you did in like 2003. Okay. <laughs> okay. This book of Galatians is for you. Okay. Galatians is for you. And I, what I would try to do is, is walk our way through these passages so that you can see that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, God wiped all of that stuff away. Not just past sins, 
but the sins that you have not even committed yet. All of that has been washed away. You died with Christ, and God sees you as a new creature. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for allowing us to be able to come and to uh, begin looking at the book of Galatians. Lord, I know that so many of us in uh, this room, even myself, uh, sometimes we, we wrestle thinking about the things that we've done in the past. And, and sometimes the enemy accuses us of, of those things. Sometimes people bring things to our, mem- our remembrance innocently by saying, hey, you remember when? And, and, and then we quietly wrestle with our shortcomings and failures and sin. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that you are not like man. You don't look on the outward appearance, but you look at the heart. You knew all of the things that we would do before we were even born, and yet you still chose us for yourself. You still called us to yourself, and you still saved us. And no matter what we do, we will never ever, ever lose that salvation. As Jesus said, no one will pluck us out of his hand. And as Paul said, there is nothing that will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I pray, Lord, that as we work our way through this uh, series in Galatians, Lord, that you would give us full assurance of our salvation. Help us, as the author of Hebrews says, to be able to come boldly before your throne of grace, I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us as we look in this book so that we could walk in a way that pleases you, but so that we could also be an encouragement to someone else. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to work on us knowing that we will all fail and fall short of your glory. But help us to know that in the times that we fail and fall short of your glory, we have an advocate, Jesus himself, who is our satisfaction. He paid the penalty for our sin. And because of that, we can be confident that you will never leave us nor forsake us. We thank you now for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.